0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy
1: this episode.
2: The NBA
1: playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Look,
0: Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey. <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the
3: new Bumble now.
2: This case was exceptional in Iceland. There there had been very few murder cases I think maybe one murder a year at the most, and always cases of domestic violence. So the police themselves would say they were completely out of their depth. They'd not seen anything like this before.
3: That was Dylan Howitt discussing a major murder investigation in Iceland in the 1970s.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Next Monday, the 14th of August, BBC4 will be broadcasting a documentary entitled Out of Thin Air, which tells the story of the disappearance of two men in Iceland in 1974. It led to one of the most dramatic investigations in the country's history, and even now questions remain to be answered. The film's director is Dylan Howitt, and he spoke to our acting digital editor Eleanor Evans.
4: Your film Out of Thin Air considers two disappearances in Iceland in uh, 1974 um, and then the subsequent investigation into six young people who were suspected um, of these disappearances. Perhaps you could just start by introducing us to Iceland in the early 1970s.
2: I mean, Iceland in the 1970s was sort of going through huge changes. Um, It had been a tremendously poor and kind of isolated country, you know, disconnected, kind of cold place stuck up there in the, in the North Atlantic. And also, quite um, not many people. Uh, I think about, in 74, there was probably about 215,000 people in total. Um, Reykjavik was quite a small town, 85,000-odd people. Um, and it was a tremendously homogenous place as well in terms of the population, you know, descendants of Vikings and Celts and little else. Um, and it had been... Basically run by the by the Danes for quite a while. They only they only won their independence in 1944. So um, it, it's this like like I say, quite a quite an isolated place. But it, it was it had it was suddenly going through these great changes because in the Second World War, Britain had actually occupied or had a base there, not occupied but had a base there. Um, in the in the sort of I think about 43 44, and then the Americans came with a base and they bought, built an airport. And suddenly money was coming to Iceland, and the, 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 they went from being a very poor country to actually being relatively wealthy in Europe in a very short period of time. So society was changing greatly um over this period and it also it's worth saying and this is something that iceland always say to you that it's, it's a, it was a very rural society and still is they always say you know icelanders are just farmers and fishermen
4: in amongst this uh this very rural kind of community then you introduce us in your film to this uh, kind of more liberal hippie scene that was happening around the world but also happening in iceland and reykjavik as well
2: it was quite a small scene i i think it was only really in Reykjavik and Keflavik partly because of the american base and and the music that was coming in through there and there was actually a a tv station and a radio station run by the americans that locals could get and and so they were starting to hear music from the outside world and there was starting to be bands formed icelandic bands and the sort of very small scene Developing, and then also drugs coming in for the first time. So, sort of marijuana, LSD was starting to come in, Um, and people describe it as always having a little bit of a lag from the rest of Europe. So, the sort of '68 big ruptures in in Europe didn't come to Iceland for a few years. I I don't think. So it was was really that then in the early '70s that you started to get get that happening, and I think that, that that was quite a threat to the older generation from what people told me as i was making the film
4: and then within this community um the the country's kind of rocked by um these disappearances first one that's a bit more innocuous and then the second which kind of um links the two and and leads to one of the biggest investigations in icelandic history um can you perhaps introduce us to the the disappearances
2: yeah sure um so i mean the the first one um was a man named gudmunder einarsson and in, in January 1974, he'd, he'd gone out drinking with some friends at a nightclub in Hafnafjordor, which is close to uh, Reykjavik. And um, he'd left the club in the middle of a snowstorm, actually, saying he was walking back home to his, his home near Reykjavik. And he was seen by a couple of people. Um, Walking home, some people saw him with another guy. Other people saw him on his own, and that was the last he was seen. And so that made the news, um, and that there were there were searches for him. But it was never thought of as suspicious because that had happened before in, in the past in Iceland that people had just kind of got lost. It's a, you know it's quite a brutal landscape of anyone who's been there, and and weather as well. It, the weather can turn you know very quickly. So it wasn't thought of as suspicious. But later that year there was a second disappearance. A guy called Gerdfinn Einason, no relative, um, did um, but that did seem suspicious. And this was a man who. Um, had been, so th- 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 what we know of his last movements, he'd gone to this, um, his local cafe in Keflavik Harbour um, and had just sort of been waiting around. It seemed like he was waiting for someone. He'd been seen there. And then he'd gone home and he'd received this strange phone call where, where he was heard to say, oh, I've been there already. I'm coming back. I'll come back. And he drives back to the cafe. He leaves his car. And then he just disappears. So clearly he was there going to meet someone. Um, and there was some witnesses who saw that somebody in the cafe making a phone call at the same time that Gerfinner got his phone call. So the, the phone call was made from the cafe to Gerfinner's house. Um, but and that was that was it. So that, that second disappearance really made the news and it really caught the public imagination. And uh, the media really whipped that up as well. So, you know, who was this man? Who was this mystery man who made the phone call that Gerfinner was going to meet? And, you know, the police... Immediately thought this was a murder, or, or something suspicious. They, even, they they called it a murder investigation quite quickly. They called a press conference that went out on TV, um, and and immediately people were talking about you know what had happened and you know and it kind of spiraled from there really.
4: And and how was it that the two disappearances then came to be linked uh, by the media by the police?
2: Well, that's that's um, quite a mysterious question. At the time, they weren't. So um, uh, in 1974, they weren't connected by anyone. Um, We kind of rounded up and and first confessed to being involved in Gudmunders' disappearance that that they, the police then started asking about the girlfriend's disappearance as well. And so, and and the police have never given a really good reason why they made that connection, why they suddenly started switching, whether they switched from one to the other. Um, They say that the, the, the five guy, uh, four four guys and a, and a woman started t- talking about Gaff, and I just just started speaking about him. Um, the defendants or the the accused say that the police started talking about it, so that that's uh, in dispute. So, so there's these uh, five characters who were who are um arrested in on suspicion of um under suspicion of being involved in the disappearance of governmenters so so that, i mean there's this kind of couple at the heart of the of the film and of the story really which is um a man named Saiva siselski and his girlfriend Atla Bolodotis. and um Saeva was a, a kind of a known petty criminal he was known by the police he, uh he smuggled marijuana for a living um he also was involved in petty thievery and he was kind of surrounded by this group that was seen at the time as kind of a group of thugs all of whom were involved in kind of petty crime and, and some i think one of them had been involved in an assault and things like that um Cypher's a really interesting character. He was quite an easy person to kind of scapegoat in a way, and quite an easy person to target. Um, partly because, well, everyone says he was a very charming guy, and he's a good-looking guy. Um, but he was kind of surrounded by these thugs, these these, uh, these it, 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 almost like bodyguards or something. And he was quite charismatic and quite controlling. It seemed, and he never seemed, even though he sold drugs, he was never involved in drugs. So, um, so that was. Part of why he was given this kind of almost Charles Manson-esque kind of, um, that's like he was given this kind of label almost of the, that he was this charismatic controlling figure, um, and and his anyway his girlfriend uh, Ertler, was the was the one who um, was f- the first to confess about the Gummendorf case, and they were all involved loosely in the hippie scene at the time. I think by by kind of mainstream. Icelanders, they were probably seen as kind of low lice, you know, people who didn't really work for a living, people who were involved in petty crime, uh, people who took drugs perhaps, things like that.
4: So your film um, investigates then how these people were uh, linked by the police to these disappearances and deals with their confessions. You investigate thoroughly in the film how these confessions were um, unreliable. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: So this is when, when the case starts to get really mysterious, because um, ostensibly when Ertler and Saiva are arrested, it's for another c- crime that they'd committed together, which was uh, the embezzlement of a post office. After some days of being in custody, Ertler is questioned about the Goodmunder disappearance, quite out of the blue, it seems, about a week into the custody. She's, inbe- she's questioned about that. And... um she she says she knows nothing about it um but they um but she does know goodman does she had met him before, and so the police kind of hone in on that and they say we 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 think you know something about this so, you know you if you know this guy you really need to to think and so she's she's put back in the cell and she's she's thinking back to that that um weekend when he when he disappeared, she was living in the same town at the time, and she she remembers that she'd had this very strange nightmare that night he disappeared. So she relates that to the police and the police become quite excited and quite convinced that this relates to the disappearance of Gümdürr. So they hold her still for for longer and they question her further. And eventually she confesses, and this is the first confession in in the case, that she saw Saeva and Christian, one of his friends, and another guy carrying what looked like a body in a sheet F- standing in her bedroom door she, she witnessed them going past the door and that's the kind of beginning of the story in a way and then then I think the the following day Saiva confesses that he was involved in uh, the killing of Gumbendurj and that, the, that they wrapped his body in a sheet and then a further two people confess the same
4: So how did these disappearances um, and the the scale of this investigation compare with cases that the police force had dealt with before?
2: I mean, this this case was exceptional in Iceland. Um, there, there had been very few murder cases, I think maybe one murder a year at the most, and always domestic, or you know, it was, it was cases of domestic violence. So the police themselves would say they were completely out of their depth. They'd, they'd not seen anything like this before. There had been a murder of a taxi driver in 1973 that had not been resolved. So that was a strange something that happened recently but beyond that this wasn't anything that the police had any experience of at all and that's still by the way the same to this day that the, the uh, iceland has an extraordinary low rate of homicide in comparison to the rest of the world
4: and so we then see this the the scale is then reflected in the media response um could you talk a little bit about how the media treated the case and treated the suspects as well
2: the media reaction was huge and it, it, the timing of the case was important because tabloid journalism had just emerged in Iceland in the sort of mid 70s. And there was about, I think, five or six dailies in Reykjavik that were all competing. And so this story um, was great fodder for them. So it made the front page for months and it was lots of different... Um, theories and ideas about what had happened initially it was about what had happened to gaffina and all kinds of theories about that but later it became about the people who had been arrested and who they were and and it, it was a lot of people have said this was trial by media you know that, that, that these obviously it was these guys you know they were well known within the icelandic population as i mentioned it was a very small population everyone kind of knows everyone everyone's somewhat related so everyone kind of knew who these people were and uh, it was quite an easy assumption to make that they were uh, they were guilty.
4: You mentioned the trial by media, um, and you also mentioned the comparisons that were made to um, Charles Manson. Um, what were the comparisons that were drawn, and how do you think it captured public imagination in the same way?
2: This, is, this kind of touches on what I was saying earlier, which is um, really about Seifer Cesaretti himself and how easy it was to scapegoat him, and it's, it's partly because you know he was this quite a small man, very short guy, I think maybe five foot four, five foot five with these quite big guys around him. So he, it's like, how, how can he control these guys? What we you know what's, what's going on here. And also the fact that he didn't use drugs himself, but he sold drugs. So there's always this sense that he was this quite charismatic and lot also women liked him a lot. You know, it, it, it wasn't his only girlfriend. He was very, uh, he, he drew people to him. He had this, um, huge lack of respect for authority he was a f- very unusual person within Iceland i think even at the time so i think that was perhaps w- why it was quite easy to see him as a kind of controller or a kind of ringleader of this of this gang
4: uh, so the remarkable thing about these uh, confessions um is how unreliable they were found to be um as the prisoners were kept in um isolation or possibly tortured as well um can you talk about how you explored that in your film
2: there's a whole series of confessions relating to these two disappearances when i first sort of approached the story obviously i wanted to find out as much as i could about it and i read everything i could and i went back as much as possible to sort of primary source and um the the, the great bulk of that source is, are these confessions and there are literally thousands and thousands of pages of court documents, of these whole series of confessions relating to the two disappearances. And what's striking is that the confessions keep changing, not just not just Ertler's confession that's changing, but it's the others as well. And and so it's, it's quite hard to get a handle actually on what the hell's going on with it. And it's only really later in the case, I think a year into the investigation, that they start to kind of... All the, all, the, all the confessions start to line up. The police are having a really hard time sort of, you know, getting a viable case that they can actually bring to court. And so at a certain point, in, in um, I think it's in the summer of 1976, they bring in this super cop, this, this investigator from, uh, from Germany um, called Karl Schutz. And he, he's a well-known figure who was involved in, for example, in the investigation of the Baden-Meinhof gang in Germany, but he's retired now. But he he comes to Iceland to help the police and sort of more or less takes control of the investigation. And um, it's it's after he arrives that that the the sort of confessions start to line up and start to be more coherent. And it's some months after he's arrived that he he calls a press conference and and says, we've solved the case. And um, the nightmare is over is the famous quote that the, the justice minister said at the time.
4: And so at what stage then do these confessions um, start to be questioned?
2: It was actually quite soon after the guilty verdict that a couple of the defendants or the convicts at that point um, start to question them and start to say, you know, actually the, these were um, coerced confessions. It's all quite troubling. It's, it's all a bit um, disorientating. In fact, you know, one of the things that's so striking about this story is, is when you really look into it, when you really drill into it is the absence of facts and, and, and maybe that's good for a history program, but you know, it's, it's, um, if you, so for example, with the first guy who disappeared, you know, we know that he went to the club. We know that he was seen afterwards walking, walking home, maybe with someone, maybe not. And that's it. After that, there's absolutely nothing. There's no body, nothing at all. And with the second guy, similarly, we, we know that there was this. He went to the cafe. He went back to the cafe. Left his car. He had this strange phone call. But once he once he left his car, no one saw him. There's no witnesses. There's no material evidence. Um, so again, nothing. So so what's so striking is the absence of facts and the volume of speculation. Just so, and it seems to me there's such a such a human thing in a way in in this. When you have this, all this, all these gaps, all this kind of space, this dark void, you need to. We need to fill it, as humans. I think and we we fill it with stories, and so all these stories start to emerge. That whether it's the gossip at the time, or whether it's the stories that came out of the inter- police interrogations, they're all just stories. And and that's and that's why, in a way, we call it out of thin air. It seems appropriate somehow. It's a, it, it, the whole thing. It felt like a giant projection screen. As one of the images I had during the film, during the filming, was in a cinema screen, a blank cinema screen, which onto which we project. And so these hippie characters were the perfect vehicle for that. They were the perfect scapegoat for us to project onto all our fears and fantasies of what maybe happened, and maybe it did happen. We, I, we, I can't say if they didn't didn't did or didn't do it. And actually, that isn't what the film is about. In the end, it's not really about innocent or guilt, innocence or guilt, because. Because of this lack of facts, we can't really say either way. But um, it, I think we can say for sure that there was a miscarriage of justice in terms of the way the police handled the investigation. That's for sure.
4: Uh, there's a figure in your film, um, Gisli Gudjonsson, who refers to memory distrust, which is what the um, suspects were, uh, are thought to perhaps have. Can you talk a little bit about what this memory distrust is thought to be?
2: Gisley thinks five of the six uh, convicts have what he, what he calls a memory distrust syndrome, which is basically when people come to doubt their own memories of what happened to the, to the extent that they sign confessions. I, I haven't seen that many other stories where this many people have suffered from a memory distrust syndrome.
4: Um, so uh, when you were creating this film, what did you find may have happened to these people that may have led to memory distrust?
2: It's one of the things that you know people sort of say to me. You know, is it how can it be possible that people would confess to something like this if they didn't do it, or or even how how is it possible that they would have a memory of something that they didn't do? And that was a big question as we were making the film to sort of try to understand that, and and especially, um, Gisli Gruyenson's ideas of of memory distrust syndrome sort of came into play. Gisli is a world leading leading expert on false confession. I mean, he's an expert witness in the case of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six, and many other cases around the world. So, he's he's looked very deeply into sort of police interrogation techniques, and he talks a lot about how these false confessions can happen and false memory can happen, and the circumstances under which it it can happen. So, for example, extended periods of isolation, um, presumption of guilt, or very persuasive interrogation techniques high, of high emotional intensity so it's prolonged persuasive repeated inter- 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 in, uh, police interviews that can really break people down.
4: Could you talk a little bit about how the case is viewed in Iceland today and kind of what the legacy is within the national consciousness?
2: One, one of the reasons why this case still endures is it's, it's the dark mystery It's it's unsolved so nobody knows what happened to godmund and nobody knows what happened to gofnor so that's that's the first thing but but then after that it's what happened to these six people who were arrested so there's a sort of dark irony at the heart of this which is that at the time people thought that that this you know murderous gang symbolized the loss of icelandic innocence somehow but actually the loss of innocence was what the kind of mass hysteria that was, that, that was created at the time enabled this quite terrible police abuse of power. So, so there was a, the, lack, the loss of innocence was, was actually what happened next. I, I always think that's a really kind of great, crazy thing about this. It's the witch hunt. You know, it's, that's the darkest thing of the story, really.
3: That was Dylan Howitt speaking to Eleanor Evans. Out of Thin Air will be aired on BBC Four on Monday the 14th of August at 10pm. And it will be available on BBC iPlayer after that. We don't always
1: realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know, playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch. But just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
3: Well, now it's time for this week's history news with our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn.
0: Around 20,000 items have been uncovered during the dredging of Portsmouth Harbour, many of which date back several centuries. More than 3 million cubic metres of sediment were removed during the process. Among everyday items such as shoes, pipes, bottles, and plates, some more unusual discoveries were made, including 36 anchors, 8 cannons an aircraft engine and a human skull thought to date back to the Napoleonic Wars. Five bombs and a German mine were also found on the seabed. Major disruptions were caused as they were removed to be detonated out at sea. In other news, a stash of aeronautical engineering drawings discovered by accident will be used to rebuild a World War II mosquito plane. More than 20,000 of the technical diagrams were found in a factory shortly before its demolition. Stored on microfilm cards, the plans include the only complete set of drawings of the mosquito in existence, as well as several design ideas that were scrapped. There are currently only three of the planes, known as the Wooden Wonder, still in working condition. The newly discovered plans have been donated to a charitable body that intends to restore the shell of a mosquito which crashed in 1949. Ross Sharp, the project's engineering director, said that the discovery of the plans would help combat... A, quote, lack of information on the building techniques, materials, fittings and specifications for the aircraft, as well as helping his team to better understand the workings of its engineers.
3: Now just before we go, here's a reminder that that the August edition of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month's issue includes pieces on Passchendaele, the history of witchcraft, the partition of India and the medieval Black Prince, among other things. Look out for it in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. Well, we've now come to the end of today's episode, but please do come back for Monday's podcast when we're going to be talking about the history of witchcraft.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at and we might read out your messages in future editions.